Henrik Grönberg. I'm an oncologist, so I see cancer patients. For, for, for myself, prostate cancer care, both when it comes to diagnostics and uh, treatment of metastatic prostate cancer. When it comes to clinical oncology, I've been heading the gastrointestinal cancer in the northern part of Sweden for five years. And I also started a clinic, one of the two first clinics of cancer genetics up in Umeå. Now, uh, when I'm heading the prostate cancer center here at Santiaran, uh, of course, that's my main focus now. I don't see other patients than prostate mm. cancer patients. Pain is some serious business. It ain't everyone who knows what to do about it. Now I hear there's a podcast just about this. It doesn't talk of pain alone, but other interesting things distracting the mind from it. So I suggest you tune in to Outsmart the Pain and listen to what Karsten has to say about it. Get ahead. Get it done. Listen to the podcast and maybe change your life or someone else's. Okay, today I have the a great opportunity to talk with Henrik Grönberg, who is a professor and a clinical doctor. You're actually sitting uh, opposite of me in hospital clothes, and you didn't do this just because of this pod. <laughs> but before, I always try to start my questions with something that you didn't really expect. So when you're not a doctor, what do you enjoy in life, Henrik? Uh, I enjoy family, of course, both with, with children and, and grandchildren. I'm a hunter, mm. so I hunt uh, roe deer and uh, uh, moose. Mm. I enjoy playing golf mm. uh, and uh, being out in the nature, uh, looking at flowers, l uh, listening to uh, birds. So you like the nature in Sweden? Do you go abroad uh, sometimes just to enjoy that? or uh, Usually when I go abroad, I mean, it's either for hunting mm. or for vacation mm. um, but I mean I enjoy the Swedish nature a lot because it's, it's really fantastic I mm. think it has a lot to offer mm. so uh, you just opened uh, an opportunity for me here because you said you play golf and uh, I don't uh, play golf uh, yet maybe when I'm retired <laughs> but I heard someone say that you should never employ someone with a low handicap in golf because then they would like to be out and play golf instead of working. <laughs> so now I'll turn that into being a professor. Mm -hmm. Because I heard at another hospital that they said, uh, clinically, you shouldn't hire someone who is really into research because you will never see them at the ward. Now I know that's not the case with you. But some reflections on that connection between research and clinical work. I will, I will first start with the golf connection because <laughs> my handicap is 33. Mm? Uh, so I'm really bad at golf. Yeah. But hopefully I'm uh, better as a doctor. Um, I think the, the combination of being a clinical researcher and being a physician, a doctor, is very important. And I've been doing that for over 30 years. Combining clinical work with uh, really good research. And um, I th the problem with that is that uh, you have to have two jobs. You know, work, work a lot harder than if you only have one job. 
but from my perspective, I've always been very interested in the uh, discussion with patients. I mean, I'm, I'm an oncologist, so I see cancer patients. And I think that's one of the key things that gives me inspiration and strength is really talking to the patients, uh, hearing their stories and trying to give the best care that I can. And when I started as a young oncologist 32, 33 years ago, I realized pretty quickly that we actually don't succeed every time when it comes to cancer patients. Um, unfortunately, we um, patients die of cancer. And of course, then we haven't done our job as good as we would like to have done. So I'm always trying to, to improve what we do and saying, okay, what we do today is good, but it's not good enough. That's by my driving force uh, in research is trying to uh, improve for, for, for myself, prostate cancer care, um, uh, both when it comes to diagnostics and, and, and uh, treatment of metastatic prostate cancer. So being an oncologist, you started with the clinical research. Did you start early on? I started doing my residency as an oncologist. I started uh, early 90s uh, uh, together when I did my residency. So I, I became an oncologist in 94 and did my PhD in 95. And then I went over to the United States for postdoc. Mm. Where in the United States? Uh, in Baltimore uh, at Johns Hopkins. Mm. Was it good? Fantastic. I mean, uh, Johns Hopkins is the, the number one hospital in the U.S. Mm. And I didn't know that when I actually went there, but it was fantastic here. I had my family with three small daughters with me. For the observant listener, you know that uh, I have an episode with the head of the pain clinic at Johns Hopkins as well uh, in this uh, pod series. So, uh, mm. um, and they're really good as well. Absolutely. That's exactly right. There was <laughs> the, the, uh, the gentleman who has created the institution's first name was Johns. You'd think it would be John, but it was John's last name Hopkins. Of yeah. course. They were leading. Mm. So uh, talking about prostate cancer, uh, did you start early being interested in that type of cancer as well? Or were your interest in oncology on another level before? When I, when I started uh, oncology, it was uh, general oncology. And when it comes to research, I started with prostate cancer. And I've been really doing prostate cancer research for over 30 years now. Mm. But when it comes to clinical oncology, I've been heading um, the gastrointestinal cancer uh, uh, in the northern part of Sweden for five years. Uh, and I also started a clinic, one of the two first clinics of cancer genetics uh, up in Umeå. Mm. So I've been very interested in, in a lot of things in general oncology, uh, not only prostate cancer. Uh, but now, uh, when I'm heading the prostate cancer center here at St. Jordan, uh, of course, that's my main focus now. Mm. I don't see other patients, or prostate mm. cancer patients. So you work clinically at the same hospital as I do here in Stockholm, Culture St. Jordan's Hospital. Yeah. And your research is affiliated uh, to Karolinska Institutet. Yes. And sometimes people uh, confuse Karolinska Institutet, with, which is the university, with Karolinska Hospital, which is the hospital. Mm. But you don't work at the hospital. And, no, I don't. Uh, so it's the Institutet. Um, okay. So. Um, just to jump right on something really, really great was that you were awarded Cancer Researcher 2022. Tell. <laughs> Tell us more about that. Well, that's, that's a fantastic uh, 
award that you can get. I mean, it's, it's about 800 people, 800 researchers that apply to the Swedish Cancer Foundation for uh, grants every year. And they pick up one of those that has the highest potential of actually changing uh, cancer care. I think it's a fantastic award and it's good not only for me, but for my whole research group. Mm. Yeah, so, so saying what we do is actually making a difference. Mm. So what did you apply for? What was your application that you actually won the prize for? I, I think it wasn't only the application, it was what you've done before also. So it's a kind of, of uh, summary of, of what you achieved before. Yes. So what I got the award for was really the uh, development of the Stockholm 3 test, uh, which is a new prostate cancer test that we developed in my research group. Mm. Uh, we will get into the Stockholm 3 uh, because I guess no one who hears this knows anything about that. But uh, tell us a little bit about prostate cancer then. What, what is that? Prostate cancer is, in the Western world, the most common cancer among males. Um, but it's also the most common ca cancer among males in southern Sahara, Africa. Uh, but it's very uncommon in Asian countries. It's a very common cancer, but very uneven distributed in, uh, in the world, which is a very interesting observation. We haven't been able to, to explain that and understand why that's the case. Um, for other cancers, there's much more unified distribution. For other cancers like liver cancer, for example, that's very common in the Asian countries due to hepatitis, uh, but very uncommon here in Sweden. So, so what are your working theories on, on this strange distribution? I, I'm, I, I'm not only mean you, but the whole cancer community. What do you think? When, when I started my research in prostate cancer, that was exactly what I tried to uh, understand. And of course, genetics is important. Uh, there are different uh, genetic differences between different populations in the world. But apart from that, we don't have any good explanations. There are no external risk factors that we've been able to uh, identify. Not smoking, uh, not alcohol, uh, nothing to do with diet. Uh, nothing to do with physical exercise. So it's it's really a big question mark, really, what is causing prostate cancer. That is extremely interesting that you actually don't know that. We don't know that. With with all the technical possibilities, genetics and things. Yeah, and that, of course, when you don't know what is causing the cancer, you can't primarily prevent it. Like lung cancer, you can prevent lung cancer by not smoking. Mm. But there's no way of preventing prostate cancer. The only way of actually uh, decreasing prostate cancer mortality, which is really the main focus of what we're doing, is is really finding it early. So, and mortality is that you actually die from it. Yes, I mean, it's really, uh, of course, there's a lot of men that you can treat and they don't die, and that's good. Mm -hmm. But of course, still, in Sweden, there is about two and a half thousand men that die of prostate cancer every mm -hmm. year. So we don't know why we have this distribution in the world. Anything about time when it occurred? Has it been the same rate all through the years? Or did something happen when you started uh, vaccinating people? I have no idea. Have you seen anything like that? that it's... Well, it's been, it's been a, a massive increase uh, in the world due to two things. One thing is an aging population. Uh, because prostate cancer is, I mean, the average age is around 70 years. And of course, if the population is getting older, you get more prostate cancer mm. just by doing that. And of course, we've been much more successful when it comes to cardiovascular disease prevention. So if you don't get cardiovascular disease, you get something else like prostate cancer. That's one thing. The second thing is with the uh, introduction of PSA testing, 
PSA is a, just a normal, a very simple blood test, prostate-specific antigen that you can measure, which is uh, something that when you have prostate cancer, PSA can uh, be increased. So with the starting of uh, using PSA about 30 years ago, the number of prostate cancer increased dramatically also. So that's, that's two things that, that happened. I, I was at a conference talking about pain medication and there was a, a big discussion about opioids. First, we had a discussion about when to use it and the problems with that, with the addiction and all that. And it was a world conference. So then the South American representative said that they couldn't actually participate in the discussion because in their countries, you weren't even allowed to get opioids because it was forbidden or it was too expensive so you could never get the treatment. So it was a very big difference in the world how to get treatment. Do you see anything like that uh, regarding prostate cancer? That what you and I are talking about now about PSA tests and all that, that some parts of the world just don't have that opportunity? I would say definitely in the in the least developed countries around the world. I mean, of course, you don't have the same healthcare and then you don't do PSA testing. For example, in, in Southern Africa, the vast majority of men that get prostate cancer is in metastatic disease mm. without PSA testing. Uh, but I would say that most of the other, because PSA testing is so simple, I mean, it's very cheap um, and costs 10 euros. Oh, so it's a cheap test. That's yeah, good. That's mm. very, mm. It is used uh, around the world, mm. uh, particularly in many in countries like Japan and China, where the incidence, the occurrence of prostate cancer is very low, the PSA testing is still quite high. So there is, of course, some of the explanation of, of different, uh, how common it is, is due to how much you do PSA testing. Mm. But I think the underlying difference is there, mm. unexplained. Mm. And, and like you said, it's still a lot of people in Southern Africa that have prostate cancer. Yeah. So, so it's not less people there. No, I would just say, for example, in Kampala in Uganda, prostate cancer is the most common cancer among males. Mm. And, and you also said that you can't really prevent it, but we hear a lot about screening and, and uh, you know, about uh, screening regarding breast cancer. Yes. And at least in Sweden, I have no idea how it's been internationally, but in Sweden, there has been some debate about if you should screen males for prostate cancer or not. What, what is your take on this? I think it's been a long discussion for about 20 years. The problem with prostate cancer screening has been that the tools we have had, it hasn't been good enough. We've been having PSA. It's not specific and sensitive enough gives a lot of false positive. But, but does that matter if you get a false positive? Yes, it does. Because, uh, yeah, because if you get a false positive, you need to do, uh, you do an MRI. Uh, so a false positive is that a test says that you have prostate cancer, but you actually don't. No, I would yeah. say like this, if you have above the threshold of three for PSA, about 75% of the men with PSA above three don't have clinical significant prostate cancer. So three out of four is false positive. Mm. And that creates, of course, a lot of diagnostic uh, interventions. It goes through an MRI uh, scan. It goes through biopsies to the prostate, through the rectum. And if you have a low-risk prostate cancer, because there are 
clinical significant cancer that you need to treat, and there are clinical insignificant cancers, small cancers that you never should even have diagnosed. If you get one of those, uh, the risk of you getting treatment for that increases, of course. But is it bad to get treatment? Isn't it good to get it extra? Well, put it like that. I mean, if you have a, a small mole in your, your skin, to take that away uh, doesn't really matter. Uh, but the prostate is a little bit more tricky because it's it's situated below the bladder, mm-hmm. your nerve bladder, in the lower pelvic, I mean, in the lower part of the, the uh, abdomen. Mm. Um, the problem there is if you, for example, do surgery, uh, your risk of, of uh, getting impotent is quite high. So you don't do that without any reason. But you also get uh, incontinence that you, I mean, you're leaking uh, urine. Um, and the problem if you do radiotherapy, which is the other option uh, for a prostate cancer, is that you get uh, urinary symptoms from the bladder uh, and from the rectum, from the bowel. So there's a lot of symptoms which are not that nice that are connected with uh, prostate cancer treatment. So you really have to select the patient that really needs the treatment. I can really understand that okay. now you shouldn't, you shouldn't be no. uh, too eager. So this is where we started like 10 years ago. It's like saying, okay, PSA is not good enough. Hmm? So we need to have a better blood test. And we need to have a better uh, diagnostic chain after that. So that's why when we developed the Stockholm 3 test, which is a new blood-based uh, test for prostate cancer, which is combining the uh, genetic susceptibility, component risk for prostate cancer, with five protein biomarkers in the blood, together with clinical information, into one algorithm that predicts what is the risk of having clinical significant prostate cancer. And we've been doing large randomized clinical trials with over 75,000 mm. people uh, in. That's a big trial. Published both in Lancet Oncology and uh, uh, New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, so that's a really high impact publication. Mm. Saying, that, okay, we developed this blood test. And then we said that we should combine it with uh, MRI, which is a magnetic resonance camera. It's like a, it's not, it's a radiological vision of the prostate, which is really good. You combine that then with what we call targeted biopsies. What you see in the MRI image is the most likely part of the prostate that you uh, should target for biopsies. Mm. And we've been showing that this diagnostic chain is so much better than PSA alone, with also better health economy. Uh, so uh, we, I think we've laid with the research we've done, we laid the foundation for starting prostate cancer screening. That is, I think, what's ongoing in Sweden today, testing these all different kind of ways of doing this. And I'm pretty sure that five years from now, we will have a national prostate cancer screening program. Mm. So Stockholm 3, the 3 is the blood samples, the MRI and the biopsies, is no, that? No, no, the, the, <laughs> the name of Stockholm 3, I mean, it's kind of, we started with doing the Stockholm 1 study. <laughs> The time we come stop with two studies. Oh, so it sounds kind of logical. <laughs> so it's nothing to do with the only thing it stopped on with was done in Stockholm with the third study we did. Mm, okay. That name has stuck. And, and is this uh, unique in the world as well? Uh, or or how, how do other countries do? I think it's, it's quite unique because we are combining both protein biomarkers and genetics and clinical information into one tool. I think mm. that's the best way of getting all the information into one decision. Mm. There are other commercial available tests, like looking at urine or looking at blood, 
but they only do one thing uh, at the time. This test is now commercially available, uh, not only in Sweden, but also in Norway, Finland, Italy, Spain, Germany, Switzerland. So it left the research initial stage and now it's clinical. Yeah. I mean, it's actually, yeah, I think it left it to the clinical or the research date, like three, four years ago. Mm. It's a commercially available test. Mm. So what happened, what is the chain for, let's say a, a person like me, I'm, I'm over 50, so I, maybe I should test, I don't know. How, how does it work? Uh, well, well, if you, if you go here to Capi Santiago's hospital in Stockholm, mm -hmm. um, we have a homepage where you can just go in and read about prostate cancer testing. And, uh, you can log in with our national, uh, digital ID, uh, bank ID. And answer some questions about your family history, uh, about symptoms, uh, and then you can order your own Stockholm free test. So if, if I have no symptoms, no family history, I can still take the test Absolute. because I'm worried or. Absolutely. Or, I think yeah. that one of the key messages I want to give is really that prostate cancer, when it gets symptoms, it's too late. Mm. So I mean, the only way to actually diagnose prostate cancer early enough is before symptoms. So. Saying that you have to have symptoms to get testing, that's, that's, that's wrong, mm. in my opinion. So statistically, uh, how, how big of a risk would it be that I would come up with a positive test? Totally. I'm 52, 53, actually. I forgot my last birthday. Okay. Uh, so I would say that, I mean, in your age, it, it's what uh, uncommon. I would say that one out of 25 in your age or one out of 50, somewhere there will develop that. But then if you go up to 60, where I am, I mean, you're out one out of 20, 15, and you go up to 70, it's one out of 10. But one out of 50, I, I find that quite high, actually. Yeah. I mean, there are other diseases that are much, much less uh, common. That's why I think you should, you should start your prostate cancer testing at age 50. And what do the health authorities or politicians say about this, uh, because I guess it's a cost for the, the society as well. Uh, are they kind of saying, yeah, this is a good test because we can see the health economics or no, nah, it's quite expensive. We need to put the money elsewhere. What, what do you say? My take home message for that is that it's always cheaper to find a cancer earlier than late. So, I mean, you always save money uh, for early diagnosis for any cancer. Uh, that's been proven so many times. So, I mean, using the, the money upfront is so much better. Mm. Just think about if you have a man with metastatic prostate cancer, I mean, I get patients in your age, uh, coming with, with metastatic prostate cancer. Mm. Uh, and of course the, the cost of treating that man, uh, I would guess between around five to 10 million Swedish crowns, mm. perhaps even more. And then you don't. You don't even have, uh, take into account the, all the suffering and, and the shorting of life in that man. Uh, and I mean, a good diagnostic chain on average would cost like two, 3,000 mm. on average because some men, of course, they don't have it. Mm. So, I mean, come on. <laughs> well, he, he almost looks a little bit, uh, irritated now, <laughs> no, 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 but no. you've heard this before, I guess. Oh yeah. I mean, oh. it's kind of thing that, I mean, if you think about it. And this is the problem with the, all the reimbursement systems, not only in Sweden, but 
around the world that we usually have silos that you only look at one part of the, uh, of the healthcare sector. So if you have money, for example, in the early diagnostic, that's in, in one clinic and the treatment of metastatic prostate cancer in another clinic. And then of course you don't see the benefits of doing early diagnostics mm. because that's more money there than here mm. in the other clinics. So th then you need a healthcare system that really understands this. Mm. And I think Sweden is a good one. I think uh, that's, that's a good place. There are other, uh, healthcare system, I would say Ramsey, which we work from, both you and me, which is a worldwide healthcare provider, mm. uh, also understands this. Um, and there are other systems in the US, for example, uh, Kaiser Permanent, which has the whole chain, everything from early prevention for everything to uh, treatment of advanced chronic diseases. Yeah. And, and sometimes, uh, I talk about costs in healthcare and, and people say that, oh, you just think about money. It's, it's something more important. But the thing is, if you spend money on one thing, you don't have the money to spend it on other things. So we really need to be wise, uh, in healthcare when we choose where to spend our money. I mean, it's, you can't buy anything if you have an empty wallet. Uh, and sometimes people think that the money that we have, for instance, in healthcare is a lot of money. You just need to focus where to spend it, but we have, a uh, um, limited amount of money. So of mm -hmm. course it needs to be put wisely. Uh, and this yeah. would be one of those places. Absolutely. Mm. I think this is one of the difficult thing for those that actually decides uh, how to prioritize mm. health. Uh, and I think we as, I mean, you in, in pain and I'm in cancer, uh, of course we think that what we do is most important. Of course. <laughs> that, that, uh, but then you have to have someone actually to, to tell us, I mean, the, this is right now more important than other things. Mm. And of course, I think that a lot of things that we do are less important. Some of the things that we put money on are not uh, worth it, but it, it's easy. I mean, I, I usually say that if you go out, out on the open market, do easy things, it always pays better than do difficult things. Mm. Yeah. And, and I think that's something that those that make these decisions need to understand. Mm. We, we had, um, one of my previous guests, Stefan Sauk, uh, he's, a, a, a well-known actor in, in Sweden uh -huh. and he kind of says what he thinks <laughs> uh, and, uh, he's a very special guy, but very, very interesting, I think. And, uh, I didn't edit his talk. Uh, so, uh, he actually said a lot of things. Uh, he talked about uh, hip surgery and he also talked about not talking about prostate cancer was kind of bad because we talk a lot about breast cancer. Yeah. I was uh, contacted by a colleague to you mm. working at prostate cancer centrum at uh, St. Joran hospital mm. because they had been inventing another type of test called Stockholm three. I was doing some lobby work for them because we have done a lot of good things for women's health. We have women clinics and we are testing women for breast cancer and public screening, you know, everyone should do it. Everyone gets called to do it, but for men, nothing. And there are more men dying from prostate cancer than women on, on breast cancer. So that's a very 
strange uh, situation. And uh, so they contacted me and I did some little tinfilter prot about that and tried to raise some opinion about it. And of course, it could be a political question, but, but I'm actually just wondering, we do talk a lot about breast cancer, but not too much about prostate cancer. Do you think that's because uh, the diagnostic tools have actually not been so good, like you said, or is there another reason? Um, what, what do you say? I, I think there are two reasons. One is, of course, we haven't had the diagnostic tools, but we have them today. So that's not, a, uh, that's not a, an argument, not talking about it. Hmm. Uh, the other thing, I think it has to do with, with male perception. It has to do, I mean, what we as male, uh, this is touching something very, very sensitive for us. It's our male, malehood. I mean, yeah, our identity, sexuality, it has the potence, mm. uh, potence and stuff like that. And that's difficult to actually talk about. Mm. And, and everything that has to do with that, um, is sensitive for us male. But I think it's been a much more opening in the society today that it's okay to talk about it. Mm. Um, and I think at least when I talk about it, my main message is that the only way to actually find prostate cancer early is before symptoms. The only way to do that is to do a blood test, mm. uh, and then going into a uh, good diagnostic chain. And I think that's, that's the thing that actually uh, not dermatizing that too much. Mm. Um, so I, I think that's important. But then I, another thing is that breast cancer have had very good patient advocacy mm. uh, uh, groups. Mm. So they've been really pushing for the last 30, 40 years. So breast cancer care today is fantastic, I mm. would say. They have breast cancer centers here in Sweden, or in Stockholm, three of them, working really nicely, mm. having a lot of good uh, uh, resources, much more resources than we in prostate cancer have mm. uh, in the same hospital. You know. I had the, here at I had the vision of actually creating something very similar to a, prost uh, to a breast cancer center, a comprehensive prostate cancer center, where we have everything from early diagnosis to uh, treatment of early prostate cancer and late prostate cancer, follow-up and research. And I think this is quite unique for Sweden. Yeah. Uh, I think I would even say for the Nordic conference yeah. that you in one clinic puts both oncologists and urologists specialized nurses, uh, in the same place. Mm. Uh, and I think that's been, I think it's been a success actually. When we started five years ago, we only had like 50 prostate cancer per year. Now we are 10, which is somewhere between 750, 800 new cases that we take care of. Mm. 800 cases, 800 new cases per year. Wow. Mm. So you can just imagine. We don't diagnose them all uh, by ourselves. We, we diagnose about 250, 300 per year here. I think that's maximum. Then we collaborate with uh, urologist, uh, uh, private urologists in our stock mm. that actually do the first uh, diagnostics and then send them to us for treatment. Mm. And then we take care of them. And do you have any quality parameters or results that you could share and uh, that um, we sure. would say about this? Sure. I mean, what we do is, first, if we look at the diagnostic chain, one thing is that we, we do the biopsies in those men we really have clinical significant prostate cancer. Uh, two thirds of the men that we do biopsy on have clinical significant prostate cancer. That means that only one third do it, uh, I mean, without getting uh, prostate cancer diagnosis. But in the town, that's the other way around. One third that do the biopsies have clinical significant cancer, two thirds do not. 
So it's, it's, it, that's, that's one thing that we, we really show that if you do really good diagnostic chain, you can select patients, uh, to do the things that you would like to do. That's one. The other thing I think is very important is the patient related outcomes. I mean, when it comes to patient satisfaction and we have, uh, we have, uh, questionnaires all around the hospital on, on all. And I think the satisfaction among our patients is extremely high. I would say more than 90, 95% are, are fully satisfied with the care we gave. Mm. Uh, and then of course we have other metrics that we don't point to, but I think that, uh, one of the, my driving forces is that you're trying to improve things bit by bit, trying new things was the result. And then you change it a little bit, get a little bit better. So your whole, the whole thing that we do is really improving everything. Step by step. Mm. And to do that, you need a hospital that allows it, mm. that you have a leadership in the hospital that allows you to test new things, uh, and to be in the front line. Um, and this is why I started here five years ago. This is why I was actually recruited to be able to do this. But I think it's been, I've been having full support from the hospital so far. And, and uh, I think that's important. Mm. Yeah, that, that can't be stressed enough, actually, that you need to have a, a leadership that believes in you or actually says that, okay, go and do something and then show us the results. And we'll, instead of just saying, nah, I don't think we don't have the funds, don't start this, we'll wait and see, yeah. and, and so on. So, so that's, I mean, otherwise we wouldn't have the Stockholm free test implemented at our hospital, I guess. You talked about the breast uh, cancer center. Uh, we have uh, one here at the hospital, and I must say I'm I'm very impressed by their work. Like you say, they they have both surgeons and oncologists, <laughs> and um, they seem to treat pain very well there as well. Sometimes when we don't see referrals from uh, certain specialities like rheumatology or neurology or maybe GPs, we unfortunately know this is because they don't actually look for pain mm -hmm. or don't have the knowledge that they could send referrals to us. But when it comes to the breast cancer center here at our hospital, we really only get the really difficult patients, okay. neuropathic pain after yeah. chemotherapy, for instance. Yeah. And we usually uh, treat them very well, so they're also satisfied. So, uh, but many years ago, I know that there was a report from the government uh, or the Socialstyrelsen, and they had a, a, about the five most common uh, cancers in, in Sweden, mm. and they had kind of a, a treatment program. And I read that whole uh, report, uh, and on those 128 pages, they mentioned pain twice. <laughs> And it was, I mean, nothing about treatment. It just said, and if they have pain, treat it. And then they had a press conference and no one said anything about pain. And I think that's kind of strange in oncology that pain isn't mentioned, at mm. least there. So this very long introduction for my question, what are your thoughts about the pain treatment in your field, cancer? It's been a really interesting development. Uh, when I started 30 years ago, um, pain was one of the main, uh, 
symptoms for metastatic prostate cancer because we only had hormone treatment. We didn't have any effective other treatments. Today we have five, six, seven effective treatments for metastatic prostate cancer. So the patient with pain, the pain as, as a primary symptom has actually decreased quite a lot due to a lot of more uh, effective uh, treatments. Of course, there are patients with pain, but it's very uncommon. Uh, and usually the pain in prostate cancer comes very late. In the more, I mean, the last two, three months, mm. we don't have any other uh, effective treatments. But the treatments of chemotherapy, the new hormonal agent, uh, radiotherapeutics like radium, uh, have actually changed that automatically, I would say. Mm. Uh, because early, I um, didn't have any, you had hormones and you have palliative radiotherapy to the bone. And that's about it. That, that was mm. about it, mm. 20, 30, but now we have everything else. So pain is not uh, a major issue anymore. Uh, yeah. Wow. That's great. Mm. So, but of course we have patients with pain, but usually lately, and then they're usually in, not our center, they're usually in the more uh, palliative care mm. units. And of course they are experts in that field of yeah. pain relief. So, so that might be a reason why I don't see that many mm. referrals from us. Mm. I haven't thought about it, but I'm talking about it. I think that's. I didn't actually mention you because I didn't think about referrals from you, but, but I must, uh, uh, admit that, uh, no, we don't get many referrals no. from you. Uh, and, and actually the, the referrals we get is like you say, a, a late stage that come into the hospital and maybe sometimes, uh, not even diagnosed a back pain. And then suddenly you see it's a metastasy and then it's comes from the prostate, yeah. but that's excellent to hear. Um, so, uh, what do you see, think about the future then? What, what can we expect ahead from your work? And I think the two things, I mean, I will continue developing the prostate cancer center here at San Fiora, mm -hmm. um, and actually have that, uh, we can hopefully treat a thousand patients per year. Mm -hmm. And if we do that, we'll become a very good, uh, center center of excellence for prostate cancer care. Mm. That's my, my goal and mission. Um, the other thing that I think is very interesting, now we are, we are part of the Ramsey Healthcare Group. Mm. Uh, and there are what are called golden standards for different, different uh, part of care. Uh, one is oncology. Mm. And I'm, I'm part of the uh, global uh, team that actually works with uh, the golden standards in, uh, in oncology in Ramsey. And actually tomorrow we will have a meeting with, uh, the head of, uh, head of oncology and cancer care in Australia, Malaysia, UK and France and Sweden, that's, that's me, uh, actually to discuss how should we, how should we develop and how should we implement, uh, best cancer care, uh, in Ramsey worldwide. Uh, and I think that's, 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 that's a challenge. Mm. And that's a good thing with being, uh, Ramsey is. Uh, so to say the owner of Kopju, which yes. has St. Johan's hospital. Yeah. And so Ramsey, uh, you could actually do a lot of things globally because they're so big. Yes. Uh, so yeah. And, and they have a very open mind about, uh, how to improve. Uh, I think they have a, a good standards of what I mean, how to do healthcare, what is important. Mm -hmm. They've been focusing on, on, uh, mental health. They've been focusing on cancer and of course cardiovascular disease. Mm. Uh, but I think the, the focus on, on mental health is quite unique for healthcare uh, provider. I think that, that tells a little bit about, about the, the focus of care. Mm. So the, the same thing you say about, uh, the leadership at the hospital, uh, making you able to work, uh, the Ramsey actually makes, uh, it better for 
uh, us to work with it as well, because they allow us, or what you said, say they encourage us to actually and uh, drive the excellence. Yeah. Well, so of course we've been having uh, a key person from from I would say uh, globally here at Santiago, mm. uh, listening to our foster cancer center, and it's obvious that I would like to import that mm. or export that to to other mm. uh, centers uh, in the Ramsey group. Mm. Well, but of course we will also learn from them. Uh, we're not perfect. I mean, we, we will learn in other cancers and also prostate cancer. I, I saw something in Australia where they have like a physical exercise uh, program for prostate cancer patients, mm. very systematic, mm. which I think we should implement. I think that that's also very important. So by just talking to other peers around the world, they're doing the same thing. Mm. We can learn. Mm. I know that Australia has a very good reputation when it comes to pain treatment. So if anyone from Ramsey hears this, uh, why not make a global thing about pain as well? <laughs> I'm available. <laughs> yeah. So, Henrik, this has been so interesting. I actually said uh, before uh, that even if you're not a male or not particularly interested in the uh, prostate gland, this would be a, a very interesting talk, and it really has. Uh, do you think that we missed anything? There's something that you really would like to say that I didn't ask um, or anything like that? No, I think it's, it's been giving a good overview of prostate cancer and, and um, how healthcare is working mm. today. I think so. Yeah. So now I know I know you have to run to another meeting. Uh, go and do your splendid work. And it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.